Welcome, my friends, to the Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. I am the Tomb's proprietor, Headstone P. Gravely, and here I are two captive hosts, Shrey Lawson and James Hickson. Welcome, everybody. Um, go ahead and mute your mics for me if you could. Um, make sure that uh, you, we're all wearing pants. Haha, <laughs> little joke there. And now the first item on the agenda today is... Uh, uh, J- James? James? Yeah? What are you doing? Who are you talking to? This like, isn't a Zoom meeting? James, I'm here in person. Like... We're in we're in the tomb together. There, there's no one to zoom with. What? I oh god, I'm so sorry. I just I saw a microphone and a computer in front of me, and I just I guess I went on autopilot. I just. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's that's understandable. That's that has been, I think, all of our collective lives for the past few months. Also, I'm just. I'm I'm so tired. Uh, guys, the reason we didn't have an episode last time around is um, I tried to install a bidet in the Tomb of Ideas. And by the way, welcome to Tomb of Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name is James Hickson. I'm and, Trey Lawson. Oh, yeah, yeah, he is. He is. It's true. But um, I tried to install a bidet in the Tomb of Ideas, and we had some minor flooding. And uh, in case you weren't aware, this this tomb, being a tomb and all, doesn't really have a whole lot in the way of ventilation or drainage. No. And apparently Trey can't swim. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem. Yeah. So that's why we weren't here last time. And basically I've been spending this whole time cleaning since then because, wow, water damage is no joke. Yep. You'd be, you'd be amazed the effect that... Uh, that much water can have even on stone walls. Yeah, yeah. But miraculously, all the comic books were safe. Yes, yes. Thankfully, so, because uh, I, I think Gravely might have been mad at us if we had ruined his collection. Yeah, all the comic books and the podcast equipment, so we still have to do the show. Right. Yeah. Darn. Darn tootin'. <laughs> but, uh, because we missed an episode... We have a lot of material to cover today. Yeah, trying to catch up for lost time. Um, actually... Plus that, plus the because of the way the month worked out, you know, in terms of figuring out what comics we were covering, um, we just we have a lot today. So uh, hopefully it'll be fun. I think we've got some good stuff coming up. But before we get to the comics for today, we should take just a very brief detour into the hottest segment in horror comics podcasting. You know it. You love it. We're talking Hellstrom Watch. James? James? Oh, God. Yes, Hellstrom Watch. So first up, and most directly related to the topic of Hellstrom, is... Amazingly, surprisingly, miraculously, two 
Marvel shows previously thought canceled on Hulu are still moving forward. Yep, Modoc and Hitmonkey. Yeah. Man. Now, if I remember correctly, Modoc is the one where it's like a family sitcom where like Patton Oswalt is the voice of Modoc. Yeah, yeah, somewhere between family sitcom and workplace sitcom. Um, the premise honestly sounds sort of like American Dad, but but less McFarlane-y. And more marvel Yes. Uh, and, and apparently is CGI. That's part of why. So all of this comes from an interview with Kevin Smith, who, if you recall, was working on the Howard the Duck animated series, which is still canceled. Yeah, that was definitely canceled. And he says that the reason Modoc and Hitmonkey are still moving forward is they were just so deep into production that not releasing them would be setting money on fire, basically. Yeah. Uh, and, and in particular, Modoc was CGI animation, and so they had, they had started that animation way early in the process. Mm-hmm. And so they just were pretty far along. Yep. And Hitmonkey, I guess just nobody cares it's also he says that they had begun animation on it too but he doesn't say whether it's uh cgi or uh 2d animation yeah it seems like they they stopped production on everything that they could stop production on right and and smith's howard the duck was still in the scripting phase yeah but you know i'm not too upset about smith's howard the duck getting canned it means they have plans for howard yeah, yeah, I, I think so. And especially knowing that there is an existing version of Howard the Duck in the MCU already that they would probably want to tie into in some way, even though he's just been sort of joke cameos so far. Like, I, I, I take that as a good sign. Yeah. So so that's that's number one, is, amazingly, Modoc and Hitmonkey, the animated series on Hulu, are both still happening. Next is that Marvel Studios is supposedly trying to work with a director named Deborah Chow, who you may or may not have heard of, but she directed two episodes of The Mandalorian recently and is also involved in the production of the Obi-Wan series for Disney+. Plus. So that Obi-Wan series is still happening? It is, yes. Nice. Um, and... And uh, Chow also directed uh, episodes of Rain, episodes of Mr. Robot. Uh, she worked on Iron Fist and Jessica Jones at Netflix. So she has some background in both TV stuff and Marvel stuff. And it looks like Marvel is keen to work with her again. It's not clear whether that would be for a movie or a TV series. But that it makes sense that they would keep someone in the fold who's been working on Disney-related properties for a while now. Which episodes of Mandalorian did she direct? Uh, so she did the third episode, which is The Sin. Um, that's, that's a good one. Yeah, that's that's the one where, uh, where he goes back for the child after handing him over to uh, Werner Herzog. And an ending that made everyone lose their minds. Yes, yes. So, so that was that was one that she did, and then later she did uh, the reckoning, which is the seventh episode, and that's the one 
where dude shows up. Yes, that's where where Gideon shows up. Yep, and everyone loses their mind. <laughs> um, and that's also the one where uh, I think that's where the reprogrammed IG Eleven first shows up. Oh, God, I love IG Eleven. <laughs> So, so she didn't just do like episodes of Mandalorian. She did two two really good episodes. Yeah, I can I can understand why they want to keep her in the fold. Yeah, definitely. So, so Deborah Chow apparently in talks with Marvel about something. Not really sure what, but she's incredibly talented and definitely uh, is a name to watch out for as as more of these shows and movies happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, next is that. Uh, with its new release date, Black Widow will make for the longest delay between Marvel Universe films since the two-year gap from Incredible Hulk to Iron Man 2. Man, that that's rough. It's not as long as that, uh, but the delay from Far From Home to Black Widow, assuming Black Widow keeps its current release date, uh, will be a 16-month delay. And that, that has Black Widow coming out in early November. That's good. So, but yeah, 16 months. That's it it is. It is. It's 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 rough. And but we I knew know, that, for instance, we knew that the next phase was going to be a little more spread out anyway just because there were fewer films. Mhm. But this is this is way bigger than anyone really expected. Well, I know for myself, you know, even if we could leave the tomb, which we can't, I wouldn't feel comfortable going to a movie theater right now. No, no, the movie theaters are reopening way too soon. Um, I am am actually pretty disappointed. I was proud. I was happy that the major chains shut down as quickly as they did and as responsibly as they did. And I'm equally disappointed at how fast and recklessly they are reopening. So, just I'm like, really, really, guys. Um, next on Hellstrom Watch is news that an amazing friend might be making her way to the MCU. <gasps> Miss Lyons? Oh, if only. I really, I would love to see the MCU version of Aunt May with a Miss Lyons. <laughs> uh, but, but no, uh, there, there are rumors that Firestar... Uh, of Spider-Man and his amazing friends, and also from various new mutant or new warriors and X-Men related stuff, yeah, um, could be making her way to the MCU. Okay. My problem with this mm-hmm. is there are rumors about everything. Sure. Yes. Like I saw a rumor the other day that Wolverine's going to be gay. Uh, sure. Fair. And Wouldn't be like, mad about it. One of no. the be- one of my favorite alternate timeline versions of Wolverine is the one who is like a gay lumberjack from like nineteenth century Canada. <laughs> I like it. I like it a he, lot. He was in the most recent version of Exiles. Nice. Nice. Have you watched have you watched that show Kibo? Kipo and the Wonder Animals or something like that. I've heard of it. I've not seen it. Um, there's a character on there. There's a, there's a race of cat people who are lumberjacks. 
and um, <laughs> they are like freaking adorable cat people, except they're all lumberjacks and they might kill you. That's that's amazing. Yes, but the head lumberjack is voiced by Steve Bloom. Nice. Who, of course, voiced Wolverine. Yes, yes. And the whole time, like, it's Wolverine. It's Wolverine. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, tangent, sorry. Sure, no, uh, but the, the, the Firestar thing, you know, maybe. Like, it. I would have, I could see, since the New Warriors TV series is apparently canceled, after not getting picked up from the pilot, um, I could see them wanting to do something else with her. Was she in a New Warriors series? I don't know if she was in the pilot or not, but there was talk that she might show up later if it got picked up. Okay. Um, and now that they've got the mutants back, so they, they don't have to deal with, you know, that, that stupid thing where they put a character in something and then Fox puts a different version of the same character in something else... Which is why Quicksilver died in Age of Ultron, but you know. Right, right. So, I could see it. I, if nothing else, I could see not necessarily powered character Angelica Jones showing up as a character in the third Spider-Man movie. Ooh, that'd be fun. Like, just as a friend of Peter or something? Yeah, I like even if Even if that's something they could like come back to later on or whatever, you know? So th- yeah. there's, there's possibilities there. Well, you know, there's also things about, like, you know, mutants were caused by the snap, and... Yeah. Which I, I'd actually be on board, on board for. Yeah, I mean, they, they did so much time travel and reality warping and all that that there's got to be some sort of consequences. Yeah, some side effects. I mean, there were, like, three snaps in the span of, what, uh, a, a couple of years? Yeah, that's good. That's going to have some effects. <laughs> and you got to consider the MCU with all the weird shit going on in it has been around for 10 years. Right, right. By the time we actually get X-Men movies, you know, people people born after Iron Man one are going to be teenagers. In fact, if you if you take into account the five years later from Endgame. Oh yeah, they are already te- teenagers. Yeah, I mean that—that's basically. I mean that's basically the arc of uh, Ant Man's daughter. You're right. She's she's old enough to be a young Avenger now. Yep, yep. Which I would not be mad about stature showing up in something. No, no. I'm not sure about the name stature though. Uh, she doesn't go by that one anymore, actually. Okay. We're just um, old fuddies who don't read comics. Well, I mean, we read comics. We just don't read comics. Well, uh, you'll appreciate this actually. So it's uh, we're talking about Cassandra Lang, Cassie Lang, who is yep. Scott Lang's daughter. Yep. And uh, she actually has started using her MC2 code name of Stinger. I do like that. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, last time I read something with Cassie in it, she was dead. So right, right. That was what the Children's Crusade. Yep. Children's yeah. Crusade. Yeah. Um, she came back. <laughs> yeah. And, In comics, uh, I'm shocked. Right, right. But did she could not use her powers anymore? Um, something about uh, the, the, it was a storyline in the Scott Lang Ant Man series that that came out of Children's Crusade and stuff. Um, but but she ends up coming back, has no powers. She ends up going to the power broker. 
Ooh, no, Cassie, no. Um, and she gets new powers from the power broker. <sighs> um, which in that story, if I remember, the power broker had rebranded himself as like, like, Uber for henchmen. What do you mean? Like, like, like he, he released an app where like villains could just like he was basically creating powered uh, people with powers that villains could use an app to select and hire for jobs. Okay, I can see that. Uh, so yeah, but but she ends up with with slightly new powers um, and a new costume that's sort of a combination of. Scott Lang's Ant-Man suit and the wasp costume. Okay. So she has the biosynthetic wings. Um, she can fire the uh, bioelectric blasts. And she has the helmet that lets her talk to insects. Well, that's good. So so basically, MC2 Stinger. I, see, I like Stinger. I like yeah. the MC2, MCU. In fact, why aren't we doing an MCU podcast? <laughs> Oh, yeah, that's right, because we're being held prisoner. Got it. Right, because we did yeah. not have a choice. Nope. Uh, so, that basically does it for the the MCU Hellstorm Watch stuff. There was one other news item that uh, is worth mentioning, just because, based on our previous conversations, that we both think it's pretty yep. cool. And that is that Jerry Conway, uh, Marvel creator extraordinaire... Yep co-creator of the yep. punisher is finally utterly fed up with the appropriation of the punisher's iconography by uh law enforcement and right-wing groups yeah as you should be um particularly the uh ways and i mean long story short because the punisher is in a lot of ways the antithesis of what law enforcement should be yes he is but uh so He's also fed up with Marvel not enforcing its own uh, copyright and trademarking of the Punisher symbols. Yeah. And so Conway has begun a charity project called Skulls for Justice. And so what he's doing is he is commissioning artists to do skull designs inspired by the Punisher logo, but reflecting the idea of Black Lives Matter. And and these designs are going on t-shirts that are being sold with the proceeds going to Black Lives Matter-related charities. That's fantastic. And most of the designs are from young artists of color, uh, some uh, African-American, uh, Latinx, like, but, but uh, minority artists for the most part. However, there are some, some ringers in there. He got some old pros to jump in and help out. I'm right now I'm looking at one that's designed by uh one of my favorite artists, Jerry Ordway. I haven't seen this one yet. I need to see this. I need to see this. Hold on. Ooh, that is nice. Yeah. It, like and it's not even really a Punisher logo. Like he just did like a a fairly photorealistic skull. Yeah. That is that is real nice. Yeah. Um and and the the t-shirts all have uh, the name or Twitter handle I think of the artists who created them like on the shirt, which is also cool. Um, yeah. So you're also like helping publicize the artists that participated. Um, I don't have a good link for it. They're through Custom Ink, but what you can do is if you're interested, 
uh, you can go to Jerry Conway's Twitter. He's mm-hmm. at Jerry Conway. And he has the link pinned to the top of his page. And I definitely recommend going out and getting a shirt. I really need to. Um, yeah, this is... Um, I, we've both been pretty vocal about how the Punisher is an outdated, outmoded character who doesn't, who should not be treated as a superhero anymore. Um, I, I think, James, you'll agree with me on that. Yeah, I, I definitely... I, I, I was just never interested in the Punisher to begin with. Yeah, yeah. And these people who idolize him are just like, why? Yeah. He's not a hero. Right, right. Just and, like, mm. and and so I, I am really impressed with Jerry Conway's reappropriation of a symbol that he helped create and, and sort of trying to turn that to a force for good. And that is definitely to be applauded. So, again, uh, go to Jerry Conway's Twitter, at Jerry Conway, and the pinned tweet right now is the link to the Skulls for Justice uh, web store. There's a bunch of cool designs there um, that are worth checking out. So so that that's just not really Hellstrom Watch related, but it's a news item that I wanted to make sure we spotlighted uh, right now because it's pretty relevant. Anyway, we've got four count them four books oh god why <laughs> four books okay five hour energy here we go yeah uh, four books this week steal yourself for this because uh we've got we've got a lot of ground to cover we've got tomb of dracula number 19 ghost rider number five fear number 21 and man thing number four So we will be right back with Tomb of Dracula number 19, right after a quick message. Don't talk, just listen. Under the black sun there is no hope, only mystery. Wonder and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. Our first issue for today is Tomb of Dracula number 19, Snowbound in Hell. Cover date on this is April 1974, written by Marv Wolfman, art by Gene Colan, inks by Tom Palmer, the letterer is John Costanza, the colorist is Glennis Ween, and the editor is Roy Thomas. The unlikely pair of Count Dracula and an injured Rachel Van Helsing are lost in a blizzard as they attempt to navigate the Transylvanian Alps. 
the two foes, long dedicated to destroying each other, must now work together in order to survive. They take refuge in a cave, and Rachel tends to her broken leg, while Dracula hunts a wild mountain goat to sustain both Rachel and himself. Having fed, Dracula reflects on the events of the crossover with Werewolf by Night. As Rachel escaped by helicopter with the pages from the Rusoff diary, Dracula attacked again, causing the chopper to crash in the mountains, where they now struggle to survive. Among the wreckage, Dracula finds the book as well as the injured Rachel. Realizing her usefulness as an emergency ration, he sets her broken leg and they embark on their journey back to civilization. Back in the cave, Rachel dines on wild goat and threatens to kill herself so that Dracula will die of starvation. However, he calls her bluff, noting that she can't be sure that he wouldn't survive the journey alone. In Ireland, the vampire Brand undergoes his final testing for Dr. Sun, demonstrating his aerial maneuvering by flying through a series of flaming hoops. Meanwhile, in the mountains, Dracula and Rachel have left the safety of the cave to continue their journey. Suddenly, just one hour before sunrise, Rachel throws herself from the cliff, intending to delay Dracula long enough for the sun's rays to destroy him. However, Dracula recovers and is able to get them both to yet another cave for shelter. Rather than sleep, however, Rachel makes plans to slay Dracula once and for all. In the catacombs of Paris, Quincy Harder is still poised to drive a stake into the heart of Blade, who was bitten by Dracula last issue. Suddenly, Blade grabs the stake and stops Harker from killing him. Harker speculates that because Blade's mother was bitten while in labor, Blade might be totally immune from the vampire's bite. Back in the cave, Rachel waits for Dracula to sleep. Despite her broken leg, she stands over him with a wooden stake, but misses as Dracula rolls to the side. He knocks her back, and as the sun sets, they embark again, until Dracula is caught off guard by an attacking mountain goat. Dracula, weakened from not feeding, is overtaken by the goat, which gnaws at Dracula's undead flesh. Rachel, despite herself, draws her pistol and kills the goat, saving Dracula. Just then, Frank arrives in a rescue helicopter. Rachel tries to wave him down, but Dracula decides, finally, to feed on her. The helicopter fires wooden bullets, causing Dracula to retreat, but he throws Rachel down the mountainside, forcing Frank to choose between rescuing his love or destroying his enemy. Noting that Rachel would want him to choose Dracula, Frank instead retrieves Rachel, and the two fly back to Transylvania. So, this issue is kind of, eh. It, it, it feels like they're treading water a little bit. Definitely. Like, like, Dracula kidnapped Rachel in the mountains, and then Frank rescued her. I mean, this is actually, it's very modern in its storytelling, in that it's it's sort of what we would now call a decompressed story. But at the same time, there's a lot of just cave hopping. And yeah, they go from cave to cave. Um, the, the, you don't really feel the progress they're making. It, it just sort of feels like they're going in no. circles. And then it's like, eat me, kill me, I'll kill myself, I'll eat you. Yeah. And she's like, eh. Yeah, it, it's, it's sort of, it feels like filler. Yeah. 
Like they 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 weren't quite ready to go to the next part of the story following the crossover. And so this sort of gave them an extra month to to figure out where they were going next. It says something that the most interesting parts of the book are the um Dr. Sun interlude and the Blade interlude. Each of which are like a couple pages. Yes. And how long has Quincy been holding that wooden stake over Blade? Hours. At least. Yeah. It's just... Also, there's something I need to get away. The helicopters. Yeah. Where do they keep on getting helicopters? Where do they keep on getting helicopter pilots? And it, it's like... So one dies at the beginning of this book. Then another one shows up at the end of this book. And... Yep. First off, Rachel says she can't fly a helicopter. Well, wasn't weren't she and Frank flying a helicopter last issue? I'm pretty sure they were. I don't I don't remember there being a pilot. There wasn't, but now all of a sudden they've got pilots to spare. Yeah. Uh I like to think that Quincy Harker is like the Doc Savage of vampire hunters, and so these ridiculous skills. Infinite helicopter pilots. <laughs> It also, I don't know, it, it feels just sort of underwhelming. Like, I, I wanted, if you're going to have Dracula in such close proximity to one of his greatest foes for an entire issue, you want the stakes to feel a little higher, you want the interpersonal drama to be a little higher, and instead, they just sort of repeat themselves over and over again. Yeah, you said stakes. <laughs> <laughs> That was not intentional, or was it? <laughs> I mean, it says something. Was the thing that gets my mojo going most in this issue is the ad for Aunt May marrying Doctor Octopus. <laughs> well, because that is a good story with like interesting character development. Yes, Rid- it, you know, on the face value, it's ridiculous. Yeah, but it has come back so many times. Yeah. Aunt May almost married to Otto Octavius. Just like, yep, that happened. Um, I also just want to say that Dracula's facial expression on the cover I find hilarious for some reason. Yeah. Uh, so the cover has Rachel holding the stake over Dracula's heart. But Dracula is like looking up at her and glaring in this really funny way. Like he's not moving to stop her, but he just sort of looks annoyed. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, there's definitely not really a scene like that in the book. Right. It's much more furtive. Yeah. I guess the word something for is. And at first I was wondering, well, doesn't he need to have a coffin here? But I guess technically the mountains are Transylvanian soil. Right, because it's the Transylvanian Alps. Yes. Which I guess that works. That counts, I think. Yeah, because it's it, they they never specify where in Transylvania the soil has to come from. It's just that he has to sleep on Transylvanian earth. Yeah, so I think he's in the clear there. And you know, it's so that we're not just harping on the negative the whole time. Uh, the art is solid; it's good as usual. Like it's it's always hard yeah. to like talk about it because Colin's art in Tomb of Dracula is just consistently good. And it's weird because, of course, I'm catching up on Makar's Marvel. Right. More on that later. And he just started showing up a bunch. Yeah. He just started showing up doing both Submariner and Iron Man. And he showed up in Iron Man. I'm like, wow, this Gene Colon artwork is so great. And then I see him as Submariner. It's like, wow, this Gene Colon artwork is really disappointing. 
<laughs> There's a definite difference in quality there. I've not been reading the Submariner stuff, but I, I will agree that the Gene Colan Iron Man stuff is really good. It is, but man, Submariner's a struggle. Yeah. Uh, that, that era of Submariner, they haven't really found their footing again with the character yet. It just takes a lot to get me to care about fish people, man. I mean, and and you know me, I I will always pick Aquaman over Namor any day. Well, that's just because you're wrong. <laughs> but, you know, I think, you know, Trey, I think once we get the Iron Man, uh, sorry, once we get the Aquaman, um, we're kind of done talking about Dracula. Yeah, no, it's, like I say, it's not a terrible issue, but it's it's filler. Right. So. But but so, even even filler in Tomb of Dracula is still better than a lot of other comics. Yeah. So take yeah. take that as you will. But it, it's not the best we've read. No. Anyway, we'll be right back with my sum summary quotation marks summary of Ghost Rider number five right after this message. Hi, I'm John Wilson and I'm Michael Kaiser and we're the hosts of the podcast Make Hours Marvel. You know, here we are in 2018, 10 years into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, can you believe we live in a world where everyone's old Aunt Petunia knows who Iron Man is? It's crazy, right? So, to celebrate, we're on our mission to explore the roots of the Marvel Universe. You know you've thought about it. Some of you may have even done it, and now we're going to do it too. We're diving back into the long boxes of Marvel's history and podcasting our way through the whole universe. All of it. Every superhero issue. And, if I can convince Mike, we'll even do Sergeant Fury. And it's not going to be one issue per episode. That'd take forever. <laughs> it's still going to take forever. But no, we're going to talk about as many comics as we can in an hour. Yep, an hour and, you know, maybe a little change. Every week, Marvel Comics. So it'd be super cool if you came along for the ride. Look for us every Friday at MakeOursMarvel.com. That's MakeOursMarvel.com. Or on iTunes and all the other usual podcasty places. And if you want to read along with us and send us your thoughts, we might even read emails. So until Avengers Infinity War gets a spin-off Warlock in the Infinity Watch TV show, make, make ours Marvel. Las Vegas, a gambler's dream. And the Dreamer's Paradise. They're all about to meet their worst nightmare. Look out, Vegas. I'm taking over! Now, the leprechaun's back in the city that never sleeps. <laughs> and he will never rest until he reclaims his pot of gold. Belongs to me, this gold I smell. Whoever's got it's going to hell. I want me shilling. Hello? If we destroy the gold, we get rid of the Leprechaun once and for all. Leprechaun 3, the third time's the charm. Welcome back to Move Ideas, a Marvel Horror Podcast. My name again is James Hickson, in case you've forgotten, which... You know, it might happen. I mean, you don't really care what my name is. But anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, our next issue this episode is Ghost Rider number five. And it comes to me to do the summary. And, well, I really haven't had time to write one. 
So I'm just going to do this Make Ours Marvel style. With, of course, apologies to John and Mike. Ghost Rider number five and Vegas Rives in Flames. Covered in this one, of course, is April 1974. Writer is Marv Wolfman and Doug Minch. Artist is Jim Mooney. Inker is Sal Trapani. Letterer is Tom Orzawinski. Orzachowski? Orzachowski. Colorist is Petra Goldberg. Editor is Roy Thomas. Okay, Ghost Rider number five. Uh, we pick up with Roxy still being threatened by Dude. I think his name's Dude. Yeah, Dude guy, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, his name is Dude... Uh, Dude Jensen. Dude Jensen, there we go. Jensen. And Dude Jensen reveals that he is in fact a demon. Shock. Awe. And he is going to leave Roxy to die because she found out that he's been, like, I think, robbing the till or something. Or crooked operations, something like that. And he reveals he is a demon called Roulette, who looks nowhere near as cool as he did on the cover. Or, or the splash page, which is really weird. But... He sets the trailer on fire and he leaves with his henchman, who is also a demon. Surprise, surprise, because he is going to attack Ghost Rider. He appears in a big flaming circle in the sky and starts throwing hellfire at Ghost Rider. Ghost Rider dodges, arrives at the trailer just in time, bursts through the wall, picks up Roxy, and scoots on out of there. Meanwhile, while Ghost Rider is distracted, and he did give him this choice, you can either, you know, save your girlfriend or save Las Vegas and Ghost Rider chose his girlfriend so now Roulette is burning Vegas to the ground starting with the Sands Hotel and here is where we learn that Dude Jensen was actually a gambler and he lost big at one of the local casinos and a bunch of the casino bosses who all of course like mobster types because it was Vegas in the 70s of course they are they uh, take him out to the desert and they have him shot and then dumped in like a quarry you know the kind that you sh shoot Doctor Who episodes in and then of course he is approached by Satan says hey I'm Satan how you doing and I will go ahead and resurrect you and give you powers if you will work for me because I've got this guy that called Ghost Rider who's a real pain in my ass and I want you to get rid of him and of course, Stu Jensen says, yeah, sure, sounds like a cool deal, and does it, and he's really lame doing it, but Johnny Storm pursues him and chases him back to this castle in the desert, which is floating on a ring of hellfire, which, I, you know, cool, cool, cool. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Ghost Rider bursts through the shield surrounding the place because apparently they count the guy trying to get in being on fire, and... Dude Jensen reveals, of course, his backstory with Satan and how powerful he is and throws Monster Hellfire at Johnny and Satan shows up and is like, I'm going to make you super powerful in order to make it where you can destroy Ghost Rider and Ghost Rider is like, well, I'm going to shoot Hellfire at you at the same time and this causes a power overload like in a video game or something and Roulette explodes. Next issue, the Zodiac Bandit Strikes. 
So what did you think about this issue, Trey? It had an ending. It did. It had an ending. Like, perhaps one of the most ridiculous video game endings ever, but you know. But it, it did kind of end. Yeah. Um, so, going back to the top, uh, literally the top of the cover, I think we've got a new tagline here. I think this is the first time that they've advertised Ghost Rider as the most supernatural superhero of all. It's a good tagline. It is, and and it it sort of reflects that they're going to start leaning into him as a superhero character more than as a horror character. Yeah, which means we can stop talking about him on the podcast, right? (laughs) No. Mm. Uh, Also, I don't like the cover. The cover's not terrible. Uh, The splash is better. The splash should have been the cover. The splash is way better. And my problem with the splash is, and the cover is the fact that Roulette on the splash and cover looks way better than he does anywhere else in this book. Yeah. Well, and granted, in in the cover and the splash, he looks like a generic Grim Reaper guy. Yeah. But that's still better than how he's drawn elsewhere in the issue. Where he looks like a guy in a rubber mask. Yes. And I have a theory about that. I, I think that what happened was someone somewhere along the way became concerned that people would get confused by having two guys with skull heads running around. Okay. Because Ghost Rider also is a, a big skull head. Okay. And so they, they changed it in the interior art. But no, the way you do that is deal that into the story. Right, right. Being like, hey, there's this guy with using fire as a skull, and hey, maybe it's that guy using fire with a skull. Well, and even, even just the idea that, oh, both of these guys have been made, like vengeful spirits by satan that's just an effect of being made a vengeful spirit by satan is that you have a skull head yeah just like mm, i feel because you're right he looks very cool he looks very golden age yes oh um, totally totally yeah like that splash page is very much a golden age splash page where you had grim reaper type guys showing up to challenge the minister heroes all the damn time yes and often were guys in yep. rubber masks see red skull Yes, yes. Uh, I had completely forgotten about the crooked promoter guy holding Roxanne hostage. I hadn't. I was a little disappointed, though, that he so quickly turned into a demon. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of inevitable, I guess. Yes, I suppose. Because they can't do any other stick in this book. Mm-hmm. Just like... <clears throat> I've been much more amused if he was actually Satan himself, which is where I originally put him as. Right, right. Because he looks like Satan. But apparently he's not. And let's see. There was some weird stuff besides the villain. There was just some weird stuff in the art throughout this one. Um, Like, was Johnny Blaze's hair always so orange? I, I think that's a recent thing. They've started doing that recently. Because his hair is really orange on, like, page three. Yeah. They've which, started doing that. Which I guess is kind of a cool effect when he turns into Ghost Rider, and so the orange hair becomes the orange flames. Yeah. But it, it was just, it seemed weird and out of place to me at first. Uh, speaking of weird art, if you look on page nine, sorry, 11, 11 mm-hmm. page 11, 
Is it just me, or is that dude pushing that lady out of the way also copying a feel? That's unfortunate. That that expression on his face is not panic. That's a leer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not good. That's real no. bad. It's no. Oh dear. Also, the Sands Casino is an actual casino. Yes, yes, it is. So they just destroyed a Vegas landmark twenty years before they actually destroyed it in real life. Yeah, I mean they probably rebuilt it. Maybe, but when was the Sands destroyed? Uh, sometime in the nineties, maybe. Um, I know they. they uh, nineteen ninety six. Yeah, that sounds right. Like I, I, I knew they talked about it in one of the Ocean's movies, and and at that point, it was already past tense. Yeah, and it was replaced with the Sahara. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm just thinking like. At that point, the Sands was a landmark, of course, because, you know, that's where the Rat Pack always played. Right, right. And my logic is, like, why destroy a Vegas landmark? Just, you know, revitalize it, expand things, and add things. Yeah. Um, and wasn't that one, uh, didn't Howard Hughes own it? I think that's the one that Howard Hughes owned. I think Because that's so. the thing that's sort of being referenced in uh, Diamonds Are Forever, with the, with the like, okay. ultra-rich guy who's living at the top of the hotel. And no one ever sees him. Okay. Howard Hughes Hotel. No, um, Howard Hughes' hotel is the Desert End. Oh, okay. Desert End. Yeah. Famous for being owned by Howard Hughes, who lived in the penthouse in Piston <laughs> Jars. It's true. Fair. He wore Kleenex bet. He wore Kleenex boxes on his feet and Piston <laughs> Jars. Oh, but Hughes bought the Sands in '67. So he owned both of them. Okay. But it's not the one he lived in. Okay. No. Uh, but anyway, um, we, we have gone off on... Uh, we've gone far enough off the mark of the comic that that sort of speaks to how we feel about the comic, I think. In fact, I found myself thinking a couple times that I would much rather be reading this uh, this issue of... Um, was it Worlds Unknown? Or what's... Worlds Unknown yeah, with Worlds an Unknown. adaptation of Theodore Sturgeon's Killdozer. This, yeah, I mean, because come on, look at that cover, look at the ad. Well, well, and Theodore Sturgeon, like he's the guy who wrote the Star Trek episode of Muck Time. Ooh, the the one uh, where uh, Spock goes through Ponfar. I would totally read a story about a homicidal bulldozer from the writer of a Muck Time. Yeah, I mean, come on. Let's see. Killdozer was a movie. <laughs> of course it was. Um, I, don't know. I think it was a movie. Killdozer, 1974 film. There we go. Made for TV movie. Oh, my. Uh, starring Clint Walker. Mm-hmm. Robert Urich. Uh, Carl Betts. Neville Brand. Yeah, not a lot of people. Apparently, oh, it aired the same year that the World's Unknown issue was published. Yeah, yeah, they're the same year. The film has since gained a cult following. I wonder why. (laughs) Uh, How is this film never not on on MST3K? Right, right. Especially being a TV movie. Those are usually not as hard to get. No. Um, So I, I have a note here. 
it's more like a line of dialogue that I invented. Okay. Um, which seems to reflect what happens in the story, and that is, quote, Las Vegas can burn in hell. Johnny Blaze, apparently. Yeah, because, like, he, he debates whether or not D- Vegas deserves to be saved or not. And it's like, that's a bit harsh. <laughs> like, you're going to condemn a whole town? I mean, they're, they're innocent people. You know, that girl working the, working the roulette table, she didn't do anything wrong. Right, right. She's just, you know, a single mom trying to support two kids and working the casino. Come on, man. And, like, seriously, how many times are we going to do the story where you must choose between saving Roxanne and whatever this other thing is? Oh, we're, we're going to do those stories till the end of time. Like, I feel like that's been a lot of Ghost Rider stories so far. Oh, well, especially Ghost Rider. Yeah, yeah. Um, Roxanne Hostage, because I can't remember her last actual last name. <laughs> um, she needs some agency. Yeah, yeah. Like, Lois Lane looks at Roxanne she, and is like, damn, girl. <laughs> yeah, we, we are approaching full-on, like, Daphne territory. Uh, um, but yeah, no, it's, and, and the ending is sort of anticlimactic. Like that, I'm gonna overload him with my own powers on top of Satan's powers. Yeah. That said, I mean, it's not the worst Ghost Rider story we've read. This is true. This one actually, like I say, it ends. It has an ending. Yeah. We went for a bunch of issues where stories just were not ending. No. And this, I mean, it, unlike Linda Littletree's stuff, this didn't drag on for five issues too long. Right, right. Where, you know, we now have a love triangle, apparently. Right. Uh, oh, uh, this is unrelated to the story of the comic, but in the soapbox for this issue, for, for several of the, the issues uh, from this month, actually, um, because they usually run the same soapbox in all the issues, um, there is another Spider-Man code. And if you were, we've talked about these before, but sometimes in the soapbox, they would run... Um, uh, a two-line sentence, really, in in sort of a decoder ring type code, and and you would get the code from Foom usually. Yeah. And and the code for this month translates to because I looked up the translation. Jonah Jameson presents my son, the Man Wolf. Oh wow! And the reason that it says that is because as of July 1974, Man-Wolf will become the featured character in Creatures on the Loose. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Starting with issue number 30. What month are we in now? We're in... Uh, April. April. So, we, so we're... not far. No, not far at all. And, and we were excited about more Man-Wolf. We were, because we know that Man-Wolf goes into weird places. Yes, yes. Um, and I think we've talked about this before, but Plug is joining Man-Thing at some point in the near future, mm-hmm. which is exciting. Well, I mean, we, I was going to talk about it in the issue, but they ask, hey, Val Myrick is leaving the book. We're getting a new artist. Yep. They don't mention yep. it's Plug, though. Well, the soapbox mentions it's Plug. Okay, yeah, but they didn't mention it was Plug in, like, the, the, the you know, next issue th- blurb. 
which right, I bet right. is because at the time they didn't know. <laughs> right. This is, this is fair. Um, but I think that's about it as far as interesting stuff in the soapbox. The main thing that I wanted to point out is they are going ahead and telling at the very least members of the Foom fan club that, uh, that man wolf is yep. coming. Yep. And that's, Oh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. I may not be as excited when we actually get to it. Cause I mean, it, it is creatures on the loose. Yeah. I'm pretty sure we were excited for ghost Rider at one point. So we just didn't know. We didn't know. We were so young and so innocent. Yeah, but but I think uh, since we've been talking about the uh, the back matter and not the story for a while, I'm running out of things to say about Ghost Rider. Again, it's not the worst we've seen, but the art's not great except for that splash, which is awesome, and the story is. Like I say, the best I can say about it is that it ends. Yeah, as Ariana Grande would say, "Thank you, next." See, I'm, I do not get that reference. I, 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 you see, I'm young and hip with the kids. <laughs> I think that probably does it for Ghost Rider, though. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's, let's just let's just get the gang's good. Oh, we'll be right back with Fear Number Twenty One. Who were they running from? What have they seen? Whom do they fear? There are five million answers to these questions, and every one of them is a shocker. No, I saw it! I saw it! Terror, five million years old, spills into our time to make two worlds collide. What is happening here and now can affect the next five million years. It was what I was afraid of. The thing got a huge intake of energy. The very substance of it seemed to be coming alive. And you can't see this world any longer. They feel it. They see it. The archaeologist who digs back into the past to unearth more horror than the human mind can bear. the scientist, who comes face to face with five million years of terror. Rony, it's Barbara. She's the one. Get down here, quick. She can see into the pit and knows the terrifying truth. He can see into the pit, but he will not believe what he sees. They were coming. Who? What were? Them. Them. He saw the creatures. They were alive. Alive? You descend into the pit of hell as you share their horror. Listen, I'm advising you all to leave. There may be grave danger. I tell you, this could be dangerous. Get back! Get back! Welcome back to Tomb of Ideas. 
I'm Trey Lawson, and our next title for today is Adventure into Fear, number 21, Project Second Genesis. Our title, or our cover date, rather, is April 1974, written by Steve Gerber, art by Gil Kane, inks by Vince Coletta, letters by Tom Orsachowski, the colorist is Petra Goldberg, and the editor is Roy Thomas. Last time, Morbius was hypnotized by the cultist Daemond, who sent him to kill one of the occult priest's most powerful enemies. Morbius arrived at his target's car, but was shocked to discover Daemond's enemy is a child. Despite the hypnosis, Morbius cannot bring himself to attack the child, and through sheer force of will, breaks Daemond's hold on him. However, his vampiric thirst overtakes him, and he again goes to drain the child of blood. However, she immediately fires force beams from her eyes, knocking Morbius back. She then uses her mental powers to project a vision of the person she will someday become, a bikini-clad warrior woman brandishing a whip. Morbius brushes off the vision as a mere illusion, until the woman cracks her whip across his face. After a struggle, Morbius overpowers the woman and bites her, which also causes the child to collapse in pain. The woman dissipates into a cloud of mist, which retracts into the mind of the child. Morbius then notices that the child bears his mark on her neck, even though he only bit the woman she projected. Driving away with the unconscious child, Morbius hypothesizes that perhaps she projected her life force into the vision, bringing it temporarily to life. Morbius notes that she needs a transfusion immediately but is distracted by a man floating over the road in front of him. The mysterious figure points him to a side road, which leads to a deserted manor overlooking Los Angeles. Morbius carries the girl inside, when more cloaked figures emerge and use telekinesis to take the child, whom they call Terra. Inside the manor is a high-tech laboratory with bodies suspended in glass tubes. The Sanctum of the Caretakers. The caretakers traveled the stars in the Starship Comet 100 centuries ago, until they crashed on prehistoric Earth. Only three of the crew survived, a scientist, an engineer, and Kamar, the historian telling the story to Morbius. They guided the development of humans over the centuries, but are finally dying. In response to humanity's decline in the past century, they have developed one last project to save the human race. Project Genesis. They are growing superhumans, dubbed the Children of the Comet, to inherit the Caretaker's mission, and Daemond stands in direct opposition to their work. The Caretakers are inherently pacifist and unable to safely use their powers to kill, so they want Morbius to destroy Daemond and his cult. In return, they will help Morbius find his lost love, Martine. The living vampire flies back to L.A. just in time to see Daemond performing a dark ritual with a woman. Morbius rushes in, but the incantation was complete enough to summon a monstrous cat called Balkatar. Their fight spills out into the street, and the demon pins Morbius to the ground. The woman accompanying Daemond dismisses Morbius as a monster, but asks that he not suffer. Daemond agrees to merely restrain Morbius until long. As the helpless vampire realizes, the woman is in fact Martine.
<sighs> you know, it took it took me listening to your summary just now to realize how bonkers this issue is. Steve Gerber's D&D sessions must have been wild back in the day. <laughs> Did he run D&D sessions for people? Because I would... I, I don't told- know, but it, this, that's what this sort of reads like. And we, we commented last issue that, you know, a previous issue of Man-Thing felt a lot like a D&D session, too. Yeah. Well, a, a similarity between that issue of Man-Thing and this issue of Morbius is that both are basically constant quests. Like, you find someone who sends you on a quest, which takes you to someone else who sends you on a quest. Yep, yep. Because the first person sent you on a quest was evil. Right. So right. we're going on a proper quest now. Right. Uh, but it's sentences like, you know, the little girl projects an image of herself as an adult in a bikini. It's just like... <laughs> <laughs> It's such a weird comment. It's such a weird comment. It's just a sentence you don't imagine yourself saying in the morning, you know? And yet, and yet, this is the most fun I've had with Morbius since he appeared in that issue of Spider-Man. Oh, definitely. Like, forget Vampire Tales. I want more of this. Right. This is just like, it's so bonkers. It's it's fun and weird, and, and Gerber kind of gets it that you can't do Morbius as a straight-up vampire. Although now I want just I just want Steve Gerber's Marvel Universe. I want this to take on a man thing and then that to go into Howard the Duck and, and just, eventually get the living mummy in there. Yeah, the Defenders and just, just give me all of it. Just Steve Gerber goodness, craziness, please. It also it also occurs to me that these these caretakers from the Starship Comet are basically making knockoff in humans. Yes. Like they are making like Store brand in humans. And that's how the storyline is going to end. They're going to get a cease and desist from Black Bolt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Saying, hey, this is our copyright. We did this. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest, though. How many times do we get ancient aliens guiding humanity in the Marvel Universe in the 1970s? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, Chariots of the Gods was very influential on, like, all of sci-fi fantasy for a while. The basic suggestion is that extraterrestrials colonized planet Earth. So so that part, it's hard to begrudge Steve Gerber that, because he's just following the zeitgeist there. Yes, which Jack Kirby loved that zeitgeist, I'm just saying. Yes, he did. Ooh. And... Happens so often. And when Kirby was originally doing it, especially with, with Thor and even with New Gods, like, that was fairly original you know like like yes chariots of the gods was a thing people were talking about but saying what if mythology but sci-fi like that yes. was that was kind of cool and new at the time well you're right he, i mean he set it up with thor and then they kind of did it more with the inhumans and then it's like okay now we have the new gods okay you're a new company we understand and now we have the eternals okay come on jack <laughs> Well, and it's especially the Eternals. I, I really do feel like part of that was he knew he had a bunch of New God stories left to tell, but he had jumped companies again, so he had to sort of start over with new characters. And also, he wanted something that was his, yeah. that, that Stan had not touched. Yeah, yeah, at Marvel. Because at that point, at that point, he couldn't go back to the Inhumans because the Inhumans were tainted goods. Right. And and even, um, even stuff like like... 
Silver Surfer and things like that had very much become Stan's projects. Yes. I think that's part of the reason he, when he did come back to Marvel, what titles he came out to as Captain mm-hmm. America, because Captain America, he definitely created Captain America. He, him and Joe Simon definitely were the creators of Captain America. Yeah. No one disputed that. Yeah. Uh, but that's not a debate we want to get into. Right, right. But but this issue, it, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, now, um, the art isn't my favorite. No, no, it's better than last issue. Like, it's better than last issue, but still some of the close-ups of Morbius seem a little bit off-model. Oh, they're perfectly on-model for Gil Kane. I can see well, right up that nose. I mean, for Gil Kane, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they they just don't look like Morbius as I usually imagine him. No, it's a bit. They make him a bit more kid friendly, actually. Yeah, but but like his face sort of stretches in weird ways. Yeah, but yeah, yeah there there are fewer lines on the face. He looks less menacing. Yes, um, which... which fits the story, I guess, because except for that one bit early on where he attacks the child. Uh, yes. Other than that, he's really not a threatening presence in the comic. Yeah, but he's still a monster, and people don't remind him that he's a monster. Right. right. Um, Even Martine. Right, which I don't know about you, but I kind of saw that twist coming. Did you? A little bit. I only saw it coming because I accidentally read your summary. <laughs> um, because you read this before I did. Uh, but... It's it's not where I imagine Martine going because last time we saw Martine, she was hang she was begging Reed Richards for help during Michael Morbius. This is true, and we never got any occult inklings from her then. True, but you I, know, I just I guess because the caretakers seemed so sure of where Martine was, and then suddenly there's a woman that they're very deliberately not showing her face. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you want to go that far, yeah. Because, oh, they're not showing her face. Hmm. Also, I, I, just off topic a little bit, but Balkatar, the, like, demon cat creature, is totally a D&D monster. Well, yeah, he, he's a, um, he would be a Tapaxi or, and Tapaxi or a Rakshasa. Um, so the tabaxi are the cat people race, and I know this because my daughter wanted to play one at one point, and she loves cat people. God help us. And I know Roshana because they're evil demon people. Roshana, yeah, evil demon people. Right. Uh, alternately could be a member of the, like, alien cat people from Star Trek the Animated Series. Alternately, can be a um, background cast member of Cats. Fair. No, this looks way better than that CGI. Well, check real quick. Can we see his butthole? <laughs> but yeah, no. Like, and again, we're we're laughing at this, but this was a fun issue. It was just, it was just it big, really was. goofy sci-fi fantasy fun. It is bonkers. And I rolled my eyes a little it bit at the caretakers, but even that was just, it wasn't bad. It was just silly. I, my, my, my reaction honestly was, oh great, another race of ancient aliens who are guiding us in the Marvel Universe. Fantastic. 
fantastic. I, I kind of want someone to go back and do, like, a miniseries set in Earth's past, where, like, all of these different races are all trying to, like, direct and save humanity come into conflict with each other. Well, I mean, like that's Like, arguing over what... territory, like gangs or something. <laughs> okay, except they're arguing over gang stuff. That's kind of what they did in Earth-X. That's true. It, but isn't that I mean, more in the future? Yeah, it's more in the future. It's been 20 years since I read Earth-X, guys. So if I'm getting details wrong, I apologize. But in it, they kind of do a history of the Marvel Universe where they make sense of, hey, uh, Asgardians... Yeah, they're aliens, but they're given form by um, humanity's belief in them, mm-hmm. and all which, kinds of which other also stuff. sounds very Star Trek. Yes. yes, which I'm totally fine with. Like, I much prefer my gods to be ancient alien beings of immense power as opposed to celestial deities. <laughs> but that's just personal bias, right? Uh, also, I don't know if we had this last time, but there is a Morbius letters page now. Is there? Mail it to Morbius. That's a horrible title. Yeah, it's real bad. <laughs> it's almost like they know they've only got about ten issues left. Okay, yeah. Um, but they're, they don't have letters yet. They're just saying, please send us letters. Yeah. Also, we have a swordsman stamp. Yeah, yeah. I uh, didn't mention it, but in uh, the uh, Ghost Rider, I think it was Ghost Rider, uh, there was a Falcon stamp. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure Ghost Rider was, I'm sorry, sorry I'm pretty sure Swordsman was dead at this point. That's possible. And was a plant man. Mm-hmm. Because that's the thing that happens at one point. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think, I, I don't know, I don't know that I have anything else from Morbius. There's a there's a backup story. It's a reprint. I didn't read it. Sorry, guys. It's got a pretty offensive depiction of uh, Romani people. Yeah. But, of course, this is the time where that was not controversial. Right. Right. Which it totally is now, guys. So, you know, don't do that. Right. So, anyway. But I think, again, like, honestly, <laughs> of the three issues we've talked about so far... I think this was by far the most fun I had reading. Oh yeah, it's it's completely bonkers, but it's just a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It's just, you know, Steve Gerber goodness. And speaking of Steve Gerber goodness, we have one more issue to talk about today. Yeah, we do. So we're going to go ahead and take one more quick break, and we'll be right back with Man-Thing, number four. Don't talk, just listen. Under the black sun there is no hope. Only mystery, wonder, and danger. Black Sun Dispatches on the Cinefunks Podcast Network. You will be blasted. 
twisted through the blackness of a hundred million nights into an incredible universe of fantastic sights and sounds beyond your wildest dreams. Star Crash, rated PG. Welcome back to Videas. We're going to do one more comic this episode and for this one we have another one of my impromptu summaries because let's be honest i've been too busy actually writing we have man thing number four um the writer on this one of course is steve Burr. the artist is val myrick the inker is jack abel the letter is dave hunt Colorist is Linda Lesman. Header is Roy Thomas. The title on this one is Making of a Madman. So we continue with the Fool Killer thing where Fool Killer has just killed Man Thing after Man Thing saves people from the downed helicopter that that Fool Killer shot down thinking it was F.A. Schist trying to escape. <laughs> His name was Fascist. Sorry, I, I, I'll just never get over that. So. He's just killed Man-Thing, and the pilot of the helicopter starts arguing with him, Hey, first you shoot us down, now you kill this guy who, who saved us. What the heck, man? So Fulker is like, Ah, you're a fool as well. Shoots him in the face. So, and then speeds off in his red convertible. And of course, Man-Thing rehydrates himself, because it turns out all the weapon did was dehydrate him, and appears up in a swamp. And the woman and her children beg Man-Thing to help them because, you know, they're still stuck in the swamp. And as a result, Man-Thing flags down a, which of course is the Jeep of S.A. Schist and his people and kind of just gives them the stare like, of course we're going to help these people and take them back to the town. Yeah, we weren't just escaping the heck out of here at all. Meanwhile, uh, Fool Killer and his convertible pass by the VW bus of Rory and his biker, new biker girlfriend, Ruth. And Fool's like, but really, I saw them. Ha 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 ha. But I have to go back to my headquarters to debrief myself, I guess. And of course, he returns to his headquarters, which is a big semi-truck, which he drives his little red convertible into. And we see his inner sanctum, his fool killer cave. And he's got a priest in a tube. Get yours now. Only nine easy payments of $19.99. And uh, we learn a little bit of his backstory. His father was a war hero who died on the last day of World War II, the day he was born. And his mother was a nurse in Korea where she died on his ninth birthday. And he went to live life like his grandmother. And he, so he was in a wheelchair. So he heard all these stories about how heroic his parents were. But he's like, I'm a, I'm just a little crippled kid. I can't do anything heroic like them. Then one day he visits a revival. And he's like, Reverend Mike's revival caravan. And Reverend Mike um, lays hands on the boy. And he's able to walk again. And it's like, oh, it's a miracle. So the boy's like, I'm going to become Reverend Mike's disciple. And be a good and priestly guy. And eventually he gets the idea that he become fool killer as well and take, you know, vengeance on the fools and so is his own costume like Spider-Man. And he goes to tell Mike about it and Mike's um, uh, piling around with some blonde floozy drinking booze and 
just they're just like got piles of money in their laps from the, they stolen from the caravan. So of course, fool killer dude is like, oh, how could it be, Mike? I kill you, and so he kills him, and now he keeps him in a tube, um, in preservatives, so he could talk to him and you know get guidance. And of course, that his mission now is to destroy fools. A mission from God. Insert Blues Brothers clip here. And he, his plan, of course, is to kill F.A. Schiss, as we learned last issue, and Rory Richard, Richard Rory, as you learned last issue, and Ted Salas, which he thinks he has already done. But of course, we know he has not actually done. Meanwhile, we cut back to Richard Rory and actually, sorry, no. First, we cut back to F.A. Schist and the hostage Sorry, the flood survivors, and they're just going along. It's like, oh, down, and Fulco's like, wait a minute, that's F.A. Schist. He's trying to get away. I'm going to chase him in my truck, and he drives him off the road, and, they, and the jeep explodes in a fireball. And he's like, ah, oh, I got F.A. Schist now. So I've got Ted Salas and F.A. Schist. Now I got to do is get Richard Rory. So Richard Rory is hanging out at a diner, and he's telling Ruth the story of Fool Killer and about how like. Fool Killer sent him a letter about the dangerous music he's on the radio because Rory used to be a DJ. And Rory played it, read Letter on the Air, and laughed at it. So he played a different a song by George Harrison called The Art of Dying, kind of make fun of Fool Killer. So Fool Killer's like, Oh, you done made fun of me. You got to die. Uh, for some reason. And uh, Richard Rory sees the real red convertible from last issue, and he's like, and the dude who gave him gas the other day, it's like, oh, that's the fool killer, just like we thought last issue. And he starts beating him. But of course, at that moment, the big green semi-truck from earlier in this issue drives through the restaurant. Because it turns out that the guy in the red car that we thought was fool killer last issue was a fool killer. Fool killer is now um, drives the restaurant and has kidnapped Richard Rory and plans to kill him and F.A. Schist, who he now has as a hostage. And he's about to shoot him. And then Man Thing walks up behind him. Is like, uh, no. Takes, put his, wraps his big hand around the gun, and of course, Fool Killer burns. And um, there's an explosion. And in a tube, the priest, the priest in a tube, get yours now, uh, explodes. And there is a shard of glass that stabs Fool Killer in the chest. Fool Killer dies with Mike on top of him. And that's the end of the issue. So. I'm thinking that Steve Gerber does not hold evangelical Christianity in very high esteem. No, no, I'm getting that feeling as well, and I am here for it. Well, it's actually incredibly timely. So um, the, 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 the name that I kept thinking of reading this issue, especially the flashback stuff with Fool Killer's origin, was Marjo Gortner. You ever heard of Marjo Gortner? I have not. Okay, so a um, little bit of a history lesson here, uh, but it's weirdly relevant in multiple ways because uh, Marjo Gortner eventually became an actor um, and starred in the low-budget sci-fi movie Star Crash. Yes! I know who you're talking about now. Go ahead. But before that, he was an evangelist. Like a revival tent traveling from town to town, like old school evangelist. And he started doing it as a kid. Like at age four, he was ordained as a preacher. Uh, 
That's and he, and okay. he was a child preacher until he basically got old enough that that novelty wore off and and it didn't work anymore. But he came back to Ching uh, as a young adult in the 70s um, entirely for money. Like, he was in it to make a profit. As many, not, not necessarily all, I, I will give some credit there, but many of the traveling evangelists were. Like, it was, he was in it for profit. Um, until, in 1972, he starred in a documentary called Marjo, which basically exposed the business of revival preaching. Uh, and, and from there, he became an actor and... and that sort of thing. Um, but, but he had this crisis of conscience in the 70s, uh, appeared in this documentary that shared his name, where he talked about basically the hypocrisy of his faith and, and sort of showed the sort of business behind the scenes. And I couldn't help but think of Marjo Gortner all through the exposing of the hypocrisy of the faith that Fool Killer supposedly adhered to. Yeah. I mean, they, they even talk about in the book about how fake killer's faith, whatever it is, is a perverted version of Christianity. Yeah. yeah. Where, you know, Richard Rory is like, hey, does that book you list, you care so much about say something about not killing right. people? Which, and again, Richard Rory is a good example of just how arbitrary this you have sinned kind of is or you are a fool thing like what did richard rory like his sin was playing rock and roll music and making fun of the fool killer yes which i'm like "Mm, is that enough to kill a guy over i don't think it is right right um and that's sort of the 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 sort of point of the the issue i guess is is the the necessary hypocrisy of that kind of all or nothing mentality, like seeing mm-hmm. everything purely as like good or evil. Yeah. And, and, and a lot of ways like this is, this is a smarter version of what was it? The hangman from Werewolf yes. by night. This is the smarter version of that. And even that we enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah. Even though I continue to be angered by, fans writing into the letters column of that book arguing that he was a hero yep those guys and of course while this fool killer is dead the fool killer identity lives on gerber revives the the idea of the character later on yeah Uh, Yeah. i also i I can't help but go back and laugh about the part where you shot down my helicopter and i said i was sorry Well, it's all okay then. <laughs> Everyone knows if you issue an apology, right, everything's right. okay now. Just ask Warnellis. Right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Bad no, joke. That, there's a lot of uh, accounting that needs to happen in the industry right now. I think. Um. So, how did Fool Killer actually gain the ability to walk again? Um. God. Okay. Yeah, I mean, there is no other possible explanation except for that as a miracle. Right. It's just that he misinterpreted the point of it all. Yeah. Unless you want to hand wave retcon it later as he's a mutant. (laughs) Which is is possible. Um, If I mean, maybe that's the way. Maybe that's the way Steve Gerber brings back later. He's a mutant with a healing factor. (laughs) 
Um, also, uh, is it just me, or do Man-Thing comics feature a surprising number of car crashes for a comic set in a swamp? It does. A surprising number. Really exploding There are, like, too. multiple in this one issue. Yep. Uh, and I, I have to say, I, I do like this, <laughs> the idea of, like, a messianic Man-Thing. Uh... You mean him coming back from the dead at that in the beginning of the issue? I I, th- I think that might be it. That 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 he, that book that's at this point very much about like religion and spirituality and and second comings and all of that. Like we we have a character who is killed and comes back and I don't know. I'd kind of li- I I would not be mad if I saw like a stained glass window of Man Thing or something. Yeah. <laughs> Throw Howard in there as well. Yeah. Right, right. But. And again, we mentioned this a little bit in the last uh, issue we out, but doing just a little bit of sort of sleuthing and researching here uh, when they're talking about changes in creative teams. Uh, here I can tell. Uh, Plug joins Man-Thing next issue. Yep. Uh, because Myrick is replacing Rich Buckler on The Living Mummy. Okay. Um, because Living Mummy is going to also be a Gerber Myrick book for a little bit. Who was it originally, Living Mummy? Was it Gerber? It was Gerber, I think. But it was, it was Gerber and Buckler at first. Okay. And so uh, Myrick is jumping Man-Thing to Mummy. And so now we're going to have Gerber Plug on Man-Thing and Gerber Myrick on Living Mummy. Which, honestly, those are both real good teams. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, it's all stuff I look forward to. It just means more books for us to up on the show. The, this is true. Yeah. This is true. Um, but, yeah, this is... Uh, I get to be surprised, but the most fun I had reading the stuff for this, this week was, were the two Gerber titles. Yeah, and like I said, I mean, I would not oppose to just a Gerber universe. Yeah, yeah, which, I mean, you sort of... It, it's interesting how, for the most part, especially for a long time, a lot of those ger- weirder Gerber characters, like Man-Thing, like Howard, did, they tended to get grouped together. Like yeah. They were their own sort of pocket of the Marvel universe for a while. And Howard has expanded now, now that he's a little more popular... You know, he's been involved in um, some more cosmic-type stuff. Uh, but uh, but for a while, that was just sort of this weird corner of the universe yeah. that no one but Gerber really touched. And, of course, he gets Defender as a later and kind of brings up some of these characters into it. Like, yes, yes. Uh, Damon Hellstrom joins the Defenders. I think Howard the Duck joins the Defenders. Right? Yes. At least for a minute, yeah. Because because Howard Howard has a weird journey that I guess we'll talk a little bit about when we get to him, but but he does sort of yeah. weave his way in and out of superhero books. I, I still enjoy uh, his his cameo in Civil War. It's one of the better moments in Civil War uh, when uh, he tries to register and is basically told that his very existence is such a headache to the department that they refuse to even acknowledge that he's yeah. a real person. So he cannot register because oh, he officially doesn't I look doesn't forward to when exist. Howard comes back. And God, we've talked about this before. I'm sorry, we're totally going to cover Howard the Duck on the show. Yes. I mean, the, 
Doesn't Dracula show up in Howard the Duck? Yes. Yeah, so we gotta cover it. And we gotta cover it, yeah. And we might as well cover every issue. Howard the Duck, canonically, is, I believe, the first comic book appearance of the rock band Kiss. Nice. I think you're right, uh, yeah. Because they exist in the Marvel Universe via Howard the Duck. Yeah. Wait, do we gotta cover Kiss comics, too? Uh, I don't remember Supernatural or, or Monstery those get, but I imagine they're at least horror-ish. Yeah, I know Doctor Doom shows up. And they were Marvel. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I think that about does it for the issues we're covering today. Right. And guys, we're going a little bit long on this episode, so we're probably going to push our coverage of the latest happenings of the Thomas Tournament to the next episode. Right. So, uh, But we are updating on Twitter every week with, uh, with new polls, so please do check those out every Wednesday. We will up- update every week with a new Marvel and a new DC uh, contest, so make sure you vote in both of those. Yeah, make sure you do. Make sure you share them. Um, please make sure you vote, because we don't want to have a tie like we did with the polls, <laughs> which is yeah. just unfortunate, and we're not sure what we're going to do there, but hey, we'll figure it out. Right. Um, but speaking of next episode, we're going to be talking about uh, Werewolf by Night number 16 and Vampire Tales number 4. So we have a comic and a magazine to look forward to next episode. Yep, and that's we'll we'll be in that for a couple yeah. episodes going, but but uh, but that should that should make some some interesting stories. I, I haven't looked at the vampire tales, but uh, but I think we've still got Don McGregor doing Morbius on that book. Yeah, so. yeah. But anyway, if you want to tell us what you thought of those issues or the issues you talked about or the Thomas tournament or really anything, we will listen to you rant about whatever you want. Short of you know conspiracy <laughs> theories about stuff that you should have conspiracy theories about <laughs> right uh, but please do reach out to us our email is tomb of ideas at gmail.com we're on twitter at tomb of ideas you can find us at facebook.com slash tomb of ideas and of course we are a, pr- a proud part of the cinepunks podcast group uh which also features shows such as Horror Business, Black Sun Dispatches, uh, Fat Girl Hacks, all kinds of weird, wild, fun stuff. So be sure to go to cinepunks.com. That's cinepunks with an X. Check out all of the cool podcasts and articles that are there. Please do. And until then, see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. You have been listening to the Tomb of Ideas. A Marvel Horror Podcast. Until next time, Tomb Members, Excelsior! <laughs>